Benjamin Franklin, you may know, was probably best known for his role as a founding father of our nation. You might also remember that he was quite an experimenter in a variety of fields, science, sociology, but one field that you may not know that he experimented in was the field of morality. Morality. What Franklin ended up doing in this experiment that he conducted was he attempted to live a morally perfect life. I want to read you a little bit of what he had to say about how this experiment went for him. He uses a little bit of old English, so I know it's 11 o'clock in the morning, so try as best you can to understand what he's saying. But this is Ben Franklin's words about trying to live a morally perfect life. It was about this time that I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination or custom or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought that I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found that I had undertaken a task of much more difficulty than I had imagined. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was in our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping. Benjamin Franklin put forward much effort at arriving at moral perfection. He sought to practice a long list of virtues, but he admitted near the end of his life that he was unable to complete his goal. He was not up to the task. We can understand why Mr. Franklin might have, been, might have attempted such a feat. I mean, if morals are established, why shouldn't the common man or woman live moral or perfectly moral? What must be taken into account that Ben neglected was our flesh, our sinful nature. Our sinful nature dictates that no matter how moral we attempt to live our life in our own strength, we will find, as Ben Franklin did, that our moral fortitude will not be sufficient to prevent our slipping. We resonate with what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Benjamin Franklin was a good man, a disciplined man, a brilliant man, but he was lost. We have no reason to believe that he ever trusted in Christ, which means that he had to give an account for his sin to the almighty creator. He had to bear the consequences of his sin. And I wonder, have you staked your life on your own morality as Benjamin Franklin did? As we come to our Bibles this morning, we see God's standard of morality talked about, his law, but we see that it has been broken. And worse than that, the pursuit of morality is actually nowhere in sight. Yet the consequences of sin are at the forefront. And as we did last week, we're going to do, we're going to work hard to make sure that we interpret our Old Testament responsibly. If you weren't here last week, the process that we talked about doing that is that first you have to look to see what's going on in the historical context of the original audience. So what's going on in their context? This morning, the audience is Jeremiah and the rebellious people of Israel. 
Next, you look to see what the message is being conveyed to this original audience. Not only the context that they're in, but also what is the message that's being conveyed to them in their context. This is often where we inadvertently end up going straight into application for our lives. We take the message that was meant for them and apply it to us, but we shouldn't do that. After we figure out the original message, then we take our interpretation through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And only then do we rely on the Holy Spirit to actually show us what the divine author of Scripture intends for us, his new, people, his new covenant people, to understand. So we have to remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So while they looked forward to God fulfilling his promises, we look back to see how God fulfilled them in Jesus. So what is the historical setting of this book, of Jeremiah? Well, after the reign of King Solomon, the tribes of Israel were divided into a northern kingdom called Judah and a southern kingdom called Israel. The northern kingdom of Judah had already been sent by this time into exile in Assyria and had returned. In the southern kingdom of Israel, a copy of the law had been found by King Josiah during his reign. Josiah then led a reform to the people's worship after reading God's law. He led the people to worship God in accordance with God's instructions. Yet after Josiah died, his son led the people into idolatry. Jeremiah then is called by the Lord to warn the people that if they did not turn back to worshiping God, what had happened to Judah would soon happen to them. God tells Jeremiah why he's going to send them into exile in Jeremiah 1, 16. Look up at the screen with me to see what the Lord says. And I, he says, will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. So this is why God is going to send judgment. They're no longer worshiping God in the ways that he's instructed and they're trusting in their own works. God describes their covenant relationship with him kind of like a, a marriage covenant, who, while, while also maintaining that he is Lord alone who is to be worshipped. Jeremiah is sent to the people to walk through the streets of Jerusalem and proclaim a message to them. Look at Jeremiah 2.2 to see the message that he's supposed to proclaim. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness. Yet he goes on to describe how they have been unfaithful to this covenant, this marriage covenant. God has seen their infidelity to his law and that proper worship has been abandoned. In chapter 3, then, the Lord actually describes Israel's infidelity in very graphic terms. He says that because she has been so idolatrous and faithless to her marriage covenant, he says of her in verse 8 of chapter 3, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. This would be seen in the devastating siege on Jerusalem and the eventual exile of the southern kingdom to Israel, or of Israel into Babylon. 
So throughout the rest of the book of Jeremiah, the focus of God's judgment was for Israel's breaking of the covenant that God made with them. Flowing from this judgment, the question raised throughout the rest of this book is this. Will there be a time in the future when God's people are able to keep God's covenant? Will there be a time in the future when God's people are able to keep God's covenant? Well, as we keep looking in Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33 is a section that is often called the book of consolation, the book of comfort. One biblical scholar has actually called it the grand hymn of Israel's deliverance. And in these chapters, we see clearly the future hope of God's people. And it's right smack dab in the middle of this section, chapters 30 to 33, that we find Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. God gives his plan for how his people can and will keep a covenant relationship with him. Simply stated, it will be through a new covenant. A new covenant that is not completely brand new, uh, but a new covenant where there are similarities and dissimilarities from former covenants. There's continuity and discontinuity. There would be some new promises and some renewed promises. And this is a beautiful passage of hope and comfort both to the exiled Israelites and to us. What we're going to do this morning is see that there are four verses about the new covenant that contain three promises that are each one made sure with two words pointing to one mediator. So four verses that contain three promises, each of them made sure, those promises are made sure by two by a two-word phrase, pointing to one mediator. Four verses, three promises, two words, one mediator. So let's dig in like it's mulch day. (laughs) These four verses are directly and entirely about the new covenant. So let's first look to see what a covenant is and what is a new covenant, what is this new covenant contrasted to? We'll get to the three promises in just a second, but let's look first and see these four verses are about the new covenant. What is a covenant and what is this new covenant contrasted to? So let's start with this question. What is a covenant? A simple six-word definition to a covenant is a binding agreement with promises and stipulations. A binding agreement with promises and stipulations. These promises and stipulations are always communicated through a mediator. So this binding agreement with promises and stipulations are always communicated through a mediator. Someone, and a mediator is someone who represents God to the people and the people to God. That's, that's what a mediator does. Now, when God makes a covenant with people, we must first recognize that every single time that he makes a covenant with people, it is an act of grace and kindness. Because humans sin, we deserve the just consequence for that sin, which the Bible tells us over and over again is death. We even see clearly in the verse just before our paragraph this morning, look at verse 30, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. As soon as I sin, I should die. 
But God makes gracious covenants with the people of his creation so that they might continue to not only physically live, but also have fellowship with him. Look with me now back at your copy of Scripture in Jeremiah 31, and let's start reading in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel for the sake, er, and the house of Judah. So let's pause there. The, for Jeremiah and the Israelites, the news of future good days would have been a really sweet relief. They're in exile. This would have been a comfort to the downhearted. It would have given them a, a desire to persevere through the difficult days of exile that lay ahead. Because as they lived day after day, the constant reminder that they had broken God's covenant came in the form of living in a foreign country as slaves with no rights and unable to return to their homeland. They could be sure that God would be faithful to his word because of those two words, I will. I will make a new covenant. When God says he will do something, you better believe it's going to happen. Look back though at verse 32 as we go on and let's now ask this question, what is this new covenant contrasted to? Well, the new covenant is, back in verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See there, some marriage covenant imagery as well. Jeremiah reminds them of a pastime in their people's history when God redeemed Israel out of a foreign country where their ancestors were slaves with no rights, unable to leave for the promised land. Very similar situation to these exiles. But God rescued them out of Egypt and made a covenant with them at the Mount Sinai. Because Moses was the mediator of that covenant, it's usually called the Mosaic Covenant. And so the Mosaic Covenant is where we see God pursue a covenant relationship with Israel as a nation. Notice the fatherly language employed here when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land. It's like, it's like a child who's just learning to walk and a parent offers them their fingers to learn how to toddle back and forth. It's also like a young child who, who's walking, through, uh, trying to cross a street. Dad reaches down with their big hand. The child reaches up and grabs it for safety from dangers all around. And God as Father tells his people how they should behave as his children. And so he gives Israel through the Mosaic Covenant both a moral and a ceremonial law. A moral law so that they knew God's standard of right and wrong. And a ceremonial law so that they knew how to have their sins atoned for when they did what was wrong. In our passage, the Lord makes clear in verse 32 that Israel has not kept the covenant. They've broken it. They did what was wrong continually and trusted in their own works to atone for their sin. They ended up worshiping other gods. And because of their resolve to remain in unrepentant sin, the people would experience the devastation of a covenantal curse. And to make matters worse, Jeremiah stresses 
that not only are the people breaking God's law, they cannot stop breaking his law because they are uncircumcised in heart. In Jeremiah 9, he describes them as uncircumcised in heart. And so the question remains, will there be a time in the future when God's people are able to keep God's covenant? The seeming obvious answer is no. Well, as a means of comfort, God said that he would make a new covenant that is not like the covenant that he made with their fathers. It would be a kind of covenant of a, of a different nature, of a different kind. It would not just be a gracious covenant. It would be a covenant of grace. This new covenant would be one where grace would saturate the entire covenantal relationship between God and his people. And it would be this way purely because of the mediator of the new covenant. In these four verses about this new covenant, we see three promises for the new covenant members that are made with two sure words. The three promises that we're going to see are a deeper fidelity to the law, a deeper knowledge of God, and a deeper experience of forgiveness. And we'll go through each of these sequentially. But the two words that I do want you to highlight, underline, write down as, we, as they pop up are these words, I will, I will. Look for this two-word phrase in your Bible, and we'll see how all of it points us to the one mediator, Jesus Christ. The first promise of this new covenant is a new relationship to God's law. No longer would the law be merely external, but the new covenant would create this first main point, a deeper fidelity to the law. A deeper fidelity to the law. This would be seen in a whole heart obedience. What is fidelity? Fidelity, uh, for those fourth, fifth graders in here who may have never heard of the word fidelity before, let's give a definition to that. It means a commitment of faithfulness to a person. A commitment of faithfulness to a person thing. What, what we see in this promise is that for the members of the new covenant, they would have the ability to live out a whole heart obedience. A whole heart obedience. Look with me beginning at verse 33. And again, look for this two-word phrase, I will. The Lord says in verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The first I will statement introduces the new covenant, but it is what the Lord declares he will do that, will draw, that draws our attention here this morning. He says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. For the Mosaic covenant, God writes down the law for the Israelites, but where does he write it? He writes it on tablets of stone. It was an external code that the Israelites must follow. God promises in the new covenant that the law would no longer be external or merely external, but that an internal fidelity or commitment to faithfulness would be the new norm. And now, after, now after receiving the law... 
the people of Israel quickly and gladly committed to obey all of it. They said, we, we will practice fidelity to this law because it, could, it meant that they could be in relationship with God. Because of the mighty acts that they had just witnessed coming out of Egypt, they saw him do plagues and wonders and splitting of the Red Sea and, and clouds and lightning and thunder and fire. They saw all of these and in Exodus 24 reads as though the people couldn't say, we agree, quick enough. Like they were excited to be in relationship with God. But Moses was clear with them that there are blessings and curses that come with the covenant. The blessing of God's presence, of God being their God, and them being his people would mean that they could live a fruitful and a long life in the land that they were going. However, if they disobeyed and broke the covenant, Moses warned the people that God would lead them out of the land and scatter them among the nations. People still signed up for this because the promises were too great to pass up. If you want to dig a little bit further on these blessings and curses, Deuteronomy 28, just jot that down. It's a great place to go to read more on these blessings and curses within the Mosaic Covenant. But it wasn't very long after receiving the law that faithfulness began to lack in Israel. Faithlessness and worship infidelity grew rampant. Story of Israel is just one roller coaster of obedience, disobedience. Repentance, obedience, disobedience. You see this most accurately in the book of Judges, but that cycle remains true even up until Jeremiah's day. The roller coaster continued. And you could say that Israel had a Benjamin Franklin problem. Or more accurately, Benjamin Franklin had an Israel problem. They attempted to keep the law, but were not up for the task. Whole heart obedience is rarely found throughout Israel's history. Yet God promises that in this new covenant, he will put the law within new covenant members and write it internally on, this, on their heart. But how does that happen? Well, it happens when the Holy Spirit comes into a person and gives them life. And this is always evidenced by someone who turns in faith to trust in the person and work of Jesus. They turn from their sin that the law shows them and believe in Jesus who kept the law because they've realized what their sin has done and what it deserves. And so they believe in Jesus for the resurrection life that his own resurrection secured. Like we saw last week, apart from Jesus and a work of his life-giving spirit, we are spiritually dead, a valley of dry bones because of our sin. But how does one come to understand that we're sinful? Well, Paul would talk about the law and say that it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. So it's as though the law is like, a, like an MRI. Let's say you have something you know, going on. You have some maybe trouble breathing, some swelling, maybe some abdominal pain. So you go to the hospital for an MRI, and the scan reveals that you have a terminal heart disease. What you're not going to do is tell the doctor, well, just give me another MRI. And just after that one, and it confirms it, just give me another MRI. Wait, just give me one more. Why? 
Because the MRI is only good in that it helps diagnose the problem. It can't do anything to solve the problem on its own. The law was meant to show people then uh, and is meant to show us the disease of our sin. It reveals to us our need of a solution, our need of healing. A solution cannot be found within the law itself. However, Jesus lived and kept the law at every point. So now the law written on the heart of every new covenant member, condemnation no longer is the result, but a deeper commitment to uphold the law, a fidelity to honor it as good and useful to show us our sin so that we might repent of it and turn to Jesus. This is what the law is meant to do in the life of a believer. The first promise of the new covenant is a deeper fidelity to God's law, which shows itself in whole heart obedience. So let me ask you, how do you know if this is true of you? Do you desire to obey God's will? That's the question. Do you desire to obey God's will? When temptation arises in your heart, do you desire to resist that sin and walk in obedience? When you find yourself being flirted with at work, do you imagine how far you could go without getting caught? When your child forgets their homework at home, do you covet someone else's more responsible child? Do you tell your boss the truth of what you've accomplished on a given work day? Do you desire to obey God's will? The first promise of the new covenant is a deeper fidelity to God's law, seen in a whole heart obedience. The second promise is a deeper knowledge of God. A deeper knowledge of God. For Israel, the Lord sending them into exile seemed like a death blow to their ability to be in relationship with him. But look with me back at the end of verse 33 for a renewed promise. The end of verse 33, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. All that first sentence there, I will be their God and they will be my people is a repetition of the primary covenant promise in all of the former covenants. So for Jeremiah and Israel, as they hear that God is willing to renew this promise, they would have joyfully received that, that one day God would establish a new covenant and renew that covenant relationship with its members. This phrase is so important to the relationship of God with his people. He identifies with his people. They are his and he is theirs. You can see why the marriage covenant is such a fitting analogy to God's promissory commitment to his people. I am yours and you are mine. It's the foundational hope of God's people that whether in life or death, they belong body and soul to their faithful creator. Next part of the promise is also fascinating. It ties to the covenant promise, I will be their God and they shall be my people with the reality of an intimate covenantal relationship. 
Look, let's look back at verse, the first part of verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You may read this and wonder, what in the world then are we doing here in church this morning? Why are you telling me, Pastor Casey, to know the Lord? Why are we receiving teaching in an effort to know God better? Well, before you apply this to yourself, let's go back to the historical context and look to see what the meaning for the original audience. Put yourself in the, Jew, in the shoes of a Jew under the old covenant. Even though God's people corporately were in covenant with God under this Mosaic covenant, you most definitely would have had neighbors, family members who did not know the Lord. They did not trust him. They didn't desire to know God. There were some who would have brought an animal sacrifice to the temple, but didn't believe the message of atonement of sins and forgiveness. Well, why? Because they didn't know the Lord. They were members of the Mosaic Covenant, but they didn't know the Lord. There were some who would have complained about the Lord's blessing of manna in the wilderness. Others who would have shriveled in fear at the surrounding, the strength of the surrounding nations. Would have been those who would have worshipped other false gods. They were members of the Mosaic Covenant, yet they didn't know the Lord. And so they broke the covenant. But what the Lord promises in this future new covenant is that every member will know the Lord. Not merely acquire knowledge about God, but they shall all know me from the least of them, from the least of them to the greatest. What a promise. In the new covenant, in this new covenant, not only will there be a desire for whole heart obedience in fidelity to God's law, but everyone will be actively pursuing a relationship with God. If you're a Christian, have you ever sat back and just marveled at the fact that you know God? You know the Lord. You know the Lord. That is an amazing fact of this new covenant that we should not lightly pass over. One way that we seek to display this new covenant reality in our own local church is through the practice of regenerate church membership. And what that means is that if you, have become, if you can become a member here if you've been regenerated by the Spirit or to be made alive by faith. That's why we have a membership class where we clearly walk through what membership means at Parkside. That's also why every prospective member sits down with a pastor so that we can hear three evidences of regeneration. Each person's understanding of the gospel, their own personal faith in Christ, and what their walk in the Spirit looks like if it is displaying itself in a desire to walk in repentance and obedience. Now, I want to state clearly, we are not infallible. We're not asked to be infallible, though. Why? Because we can't see the heart like the Lord can. We are asked, though, to be discerning as best as possible. Who are those who really know the Lord? And those who we welcome into membership are those who we have, deem as having a credible profession of faith that we believe that they are regenerate. 
And so we practice regenerate church membership because it reflects the new covenant. So let's say you know the Lord. You're saved. You're a Christian. Do you desire to know him more? Do you desire to know him more? The promise, the promise of knowing the Lord does not exclude a Christian's desire to know God more. So let me ask you again, do you long to know the Lord more? Christian, now that you are in covenant relationship with him, pursue knowing him more. Think of a marriage. When a man and woman get married, they know each other. And intimately so, even on day one. But day one, they don't know each other fully. Most of us who've been married at any length of time at all, we'd look back and say that, yeah, those newlyweds hardly knew each other at all. But even on a 20th anniversary, 30th, 40th, a married couple still probably won't say that they know each other fully. They're still learning about each other. And they're in the covenant relationship to continue learning about each other, to love each other more. And in so doing, they grow in their love for each other. Truth we repeat around here often is that the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. That's one reason why we gather each week on Sunday. To learn more about God from his self-revelation in scripture. And that's why it's good to have a formative habit for you to get in God's word every single day, to pray with him every single day. Do you long to know the Lord more? Well, the second promise is that the new covenant members will have a deeper knowledge of the Lord. And the third and final promise that we see at the end of verse 34 is a deeper experience of forgiveness a deeper experience of forgiveness. Israel was sent away because of their sin, their unrighteousness, their transgression of God's law. If sin causes such damage, how can people possibly keep covenant with God? The law is written on the heart like an MRI shows a person their sin The logical question the Israelites and even we ourselves are left with is this. How can a person know the Lord if they still bear their sin? How can a person know the Lord, be be in relationship with the Lord if they still bear their sin? Well, in the kindness of the Lord, he is sure to include a solution to this problem. At the end of verse 34, look there with me. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. <laughs> Forgiveness is one of the primary provisions in the, in the ceremonial law, part of the Mosaic covenant. A whole system of sacrifices were regularly practiced with a variety of sacrifices for an equally diverse array of sins. The system was elaborate. Why? Because of the holiness of God, who they worshiped. A holy God can only dwell among and fellowship with sinful people if their sin is atoned for. But the necessary regularity of the sacrifices tells us actually two things about this sacrificial system. First, the blood of lambs, doves, bulls, goats 
could never enact a once-for-all forgiveness of sins. However, without blood, the blood of a substitute, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And so blood was and is necessary for forgiveness to be experienced. But the second thing we learn about this system, this sacrificial system, is this, that the sinfulness of man creates a need for endless sacrifices. There's a need for endless sacrifices because the cycle of sin, sacrifice, atonement, sin, sacrifice, atonement would never, ever end. And so we have the promise stated, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This means that in the new covenant, there must be blood of a substitute for forgiveness to be experienced by new covenant members. And if God will no longer remember their sin, past, present, and future, it would have to be a once-for-all kind of sacrifice. And that's exactly who we find Jesus to claim to be. As he ate the Passover meal with his disciples, before enduring the cross, in Luke 22, verse 20, he raised his cup and said to them, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He says the new covenant that you read about back in Jeremiah 31, that's, I'm about to make that sure. I'm about to enact that. Jesus claimed that his blood would enact the forgiveness promised in the new covenant. The Gospel of Matthew records Jesus' explanation slightly differently, but I want you to read it because it's so clear. He says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He makes it clear his blood is meant to forgive sins. Jesus is the substitute that the Lord promised in Jeremiah 31. We see this even more clearly further into the New Testament as we read. Jeremiah 31 is actually quoted twice in the New Testament. And both times show up in the book of Hebrews. The first time we see these verses cited is in Hebrews 8. You don't have to turn there. But the writer uses all of the promises in Jeremiah 31 to show this. That Christ has obtained a ministry that is much, as much more excellent than the old as the, co- as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Better covenant, better promises. The next time that Jeremiah 31 is quoted, the promise of a deeper experience of forgiveness is highlighted. And I want you to listen to how the person and work of Jesus solves the faults of the old covenant. It fulfills the promises of the new covenant and it also gives confidence in this once for all sacrifice. And I'm going to read this. This is a long portion. Feel free to read along or close your eyes and just take this in because this is amazing. As we see the promises of the new covenant come to fruition in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews does a beautiful job bringing them together and showing the one mediator of Jesus. Hear now the words of the writer of Hebrews. And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for a single, uh, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and here's Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Experience of forgiveness is totally different because of a once for all sacrifice. The only way that sinful humans like Jeremiah, Benjamin Franklin, and you and me can enter and maintain a covenant relationship with God is through forgiveness. Full and final forgiveness. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is your reality. Full and final forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness of sins is a huge promise. It's a promise that we bank our lives on. But forgiveness of sins should not end with us. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus commissions his disciples to spread a particular message. Can you guess what that good news was? He says this, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. <laughs> Christian, let me ask you, when you share the gospel with an unbelieving family member, neighbor, friend, coworker, do you share it with them about the freedom that God's forgiveness of your sin has brought to you? Do you share with them that they too can be forgiven of their sins through repentance and faith? If you're not a Christian, I hope you've gotten a taste for why we Christians get all jazzed up about Jesus. The promises are way better than anything in this world you can bank your life on. And you can rest assured that the, the God who promised this new covenant with the simple phrase, I will. He will be faithful to fulfill his promises towards you. Will you turn from your sin and idolatry, which is simply trusting, simply trusting. Idolatry is trusting anything other than Jesus. And will you trust this one mediator, Jesus Christ? He offers to you this morning forgiveness of your sins knowledge of God, your creator, and an internal fidelity to his law. These four verses are beautiful verses, are they not? The three promises contained in them, made sure by the two-word phrase, I will, all point us to the one creator, where we find full and final forgiveness of sins. All of this tells us that there will be a time when God's people will be able to keep God's covenant. But it is not because of our works. It's because of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise of 
love, deeper fidelity to the law, a deeper knowledge of God, and a deeper experience of forgiveness through the finished work of Jesus. Praise be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for not only your word, but the promise given here in your word that gives such comfort. Give comfort to weary hearts. Give comfort to those ashamed by their sin. You promise full and final forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son who came not as like like the lambs and bulls and goats of the old covenant. They were unwilling sacrifices. You sent your son and he came as a willing sacrifice on behalf of the sins of all those who would repent and believe in his work. Lord, would you give us a realization, a deeper experience of this forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we ask that you would grow in us a knowledge of you and a deeper fidelity to your law through a whole heart obedience. Would you make us look like Jesus? I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.